I would invite you to take your scripture, a copy of the Bible somewhere, and take a look at Matthew chapter 10 this morning. Matthew 10, the first book in our New Testaments. We have been working through this book, studying together through it on Lord's Day mornings now. And we're coming to the beginning of chapter 10. At the end of chapter 9, we saw where Jesus told His disciples, after a record of an incredible amount of ministry on His part, He told His disciples, Look, the harvest is great. The laborers are few. So much need out there. And He admonished His disciples to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers out into the harvest fields. And that's what they did. And the Lord answered that prayer. And this text is the beginnings of the answer to that prayer. And we will see the Lord Himself, the Lord of the harvest, sending laborers out into the world. Several... um, times in this gospel, we've seen the Lord interacting with people, different types of people. There was, on the one hand, the large crowds of people. Matthew and the other gospel writers record that when Jesus did these miracles and He taught the the people, that huge gatherings would flock to Him from all of the different towns around, and they would come out to the uh, countryside where He would often be, and there they would gather and listen to Him, and just thousands and thousands of people on some occasions, we know. But the crowds were not always really committed to Him. Some of them were curious, some were intrigued by what He had to say, some seemed to be real followers for a while, and then He would say something that was just too hard for them to receive, and they would, they would go away, they would turn away from him. So he spoke to the great crowds, but he also spoke to a smaller group. There was a group within that group that were really more deeply committed followers that the Bible refers to often as his disciples. Jesus had many disciples. At one point, he sends out 70 disciples to go on a special mission. We know the names of some of these disciples. Many of them we don't know. We know that they included both men and women. When Jesus died and before He ascended, there was a group of 120 of His disciples, committed followers, gathered together in an upper room. So there were these people who were committed to Him, but then there was within that group an even smaller group, a group that is just simply called the Twelve in many places in the Bible, or the Twelve Disciples, or the Twelve Apostles. These were twelve individual men selected by Jesus Christ to be His closest inner circle. And we know all of their names. We already read about how Jesus called five of them to Himself. We read about Peter and Andrew James and John, and then, of course, about Matthew himself, the writer of this book, how he was called to follow Christ. These 12 men become really important in the unfolding of the New Testament. 
in much the same way as that the 12 tribes of Israel were foundational in the Old Testament. This is a divinely intentional parallel here. Christ came to fulfill in Himself what was revealed in types and shadows throughout the Old Testament. And in Revelation 21, John sees a vision, you remember, of the new Jerusalem, a heavenly city, uh, a picture of the people of God coming down out of heaven, a bride ready for her groom. This city comes down out of heaven, and this city, this heavenly city, is surrounded by 12 gates, three on each side. And over the gates is the na- are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. But those gates have 12 foundation stones. And on those 12 stones are the names of the 12 apostles. So Jesus Christ, uh, so these apostles, both the 12 tribes, and if you want to say it another way, the 12 apostles, they delineate the one true people of God. So these apostles become really important in the unfolding of the New Testament. And we read in our text this morning, for the first time in Matthew's Gospel, about the commissioning, the sending out of these 12 men. So Matthew chapter 10, and our text will be the first 15 verses again. I invite you to look at the Bible, and it will be very helpful to you. Matthew 10, beginning in verse 1, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the twelve apostles are these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You have received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, and no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What we have here in this text are 12 ordinary men and one unique calling. Notice first the men. The men are listed here. 
They're listed by twos. That's probably the way, that, or certainly is the way we know from other Gospels that Jesus sent them out. And so it's likely that they're listed in twos here because these are the men who went together as partners. We don't know that for certain, but it does seem that that's probably the case. In some cases, the uh, partners go together pretty naturally, or maybe not. They're brothers, <laughs> depending on how well brothers get along, I guess. But you've got Peter. He's named Peter by the Lord. His name was Simon. And uh, his brother, Andrew. And they are brothers, and they're, uh, they're fishermen, common fishermen. Pretty uh, widespread occupation up there in the area of Galilee in the north of Israel. So large sea, lots of fish. Um, then there were brothers James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Uh, they likewise were called uh, to follow Jesus and, and leave their occupation and just become his, his pupils and his protégés and his disciples. Then you've got, uh, and, and by the way, of course, we know that Peter, along with these two, James and John, these two brothers, form a sort of inner circle within the inner circle, and Jesus often just takes Peter and James and John to accompany him with Peter as the naturally outgoing spokesman. And then we're, we've got listed Philip. Uh, Philip was from the same town as, as Peter and Andrew, at least that he lived there for a while. Um, and Philip, in turn, brought the next disciple listed here. He brought him to Jesus. That was Bartholomew, who's also called uh, Nathaniel in the Scriptures. A lot of times these are, are nicknames that people receive or named. They have several names. Uh, when Jesus met Bartholomew or Nathaniel, he said, this is an Israelite indeed, which probably is a reference to the fact that he was a true believer who waited in faith for God's Messiah, and now he had come. And then there was Thomas, who is infamous to us because he struggled to believe but who also in the end gave one of the most beautiful and profound declarations of faith in all the Bible. He fell at the feet of the Lord Jesus and he says, My Lord and my God. Then there's Matthew, of course. Matthew, the author of this book, a one-time tax collector, despised sinner, and in the view of God's people, betrayer of their country. Then there's James, the son of Alphaeus, um, which is to distinguish him, of course, from the other James, the better-known James, James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John. He's sometimes called, this one is sometimes called James the Less. How'd you like that for a name? There's, there's the James, and then there's James the Less. Maybe, maybe he was just short, I don't know. Maybe he was younger, uh, maybe he was just less prominent, but he's James, the son of of Alpheus, and then there's Thaddeus, or Lebius, who also is known as uh, Jude or Judas, same thing. Um, we don't know as much about him, very little known, in fact. So we go on to Simon, who uh, Matthew identifies as a zealot, which might just mean that he was really zealous about, his, uh, about the Lord or about life in general, uh, but, but probably by the time Matthew's writing, certainly um, the zealots 
were actually a, a, a well-known group, a group of um, Jews who claimed to be zealous for their faith, who were very angry at the occupation of the Roman Empire and were ready to throw off the, uh, the uh, empire's uh, uh, heavy hand at any cost, even at the cost of violence. It might be that Simon was actually a member of a, of a sort of proto-zealot group, uh, even when he was called. So he comes out of that sort of background, and now he's following Jesus. And then finally, we have listed Judas Iscariot, who we know proves to be no true apostle, no true disciple at all but rather was chosen in the foreknowledge of God that he would be the betrayer of the Messiah. And in the end, his position would be taken by another as he had abandoned his post. Now, what is striking about this list as Matthew records it is that he lists very few details about these guys. Uh, In fact, in some cases, as I mentioned, we don't know a whole lot of details. There is... There are a few of them that really stand out for their own sakes. There's not a scribe or a priest or a rabbi among them. They're just common, sort of everyday kind of people from a variety of different backgrounds of life. But Christ chooses the ordinary in order to demonstrate that all of the glory is God's for what will come from the ministry of these men, that it's not these men who build the church, but it is Christ. It is the strength and the authority of Jesus Himself who builds His kingdom on this earth. Now, we look briefly then at the men. These 12 ordinary men, let's take a look at their extraordinary mission. This is not an account in this passage of their original calling when they first were called to follow Jesus initially. Um, That had already taken place. These men were already committed disciples. In fact, we read in the past few chapters about the call of five of them. But this is a special commissioning of these twelve for a specific temporary but very important mission in the outworking of God's plan Uh, to bring redemption. So I want us to see several things that Matthew records here for us about the mission that Jesus sent these men on. The first is the scope of this mission. He says in verse number 5, if you take a look at it again, just to refresh our memory, Jesus sent them out saying, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, that is the non-Jewish nations, go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans. Samaritans were like, kind of a sort of half-Jews, you might say, um, that had abandoned a lot of Judaism uh, and had perverted it and uh, had even intermarried with non-Jews. And so, so he says, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the towns of the Samaritans, but verse 6, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The scope of this mission was strictly to Jewish towns and Jewish cities. Although some Gentiles certainly did live in those areas, they would hear, but the scope was to the Jewish areas. And this is in keeping with the overall scheme of God's unfolding plan, which is that the gospel would come to the Jew first. 
Now the Jews, we know, you've read the Bible, you know the Jews end up rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. As on a whole, many, many of them become believers. But as a whole nation, they turn away from receiving Jesus as the Messiah, the promised one. He was a prophet without honor in his own country, he would say. But Paul says, he points this out in Romans chapter 11, that their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah would turn out to be riches for the Gentiles. A wealth of mercy would turn from being poured out upon the Jews to being poured out upon all of the nations. Now, I want to ask, why did God do it this way? Why did He send these men just to the Jews, knowing that the Jews would reject, then the gospel would go to the Gentiles, to the Samaritans and the Greeks and the Romans and out to the uttermost part of the earth? Why did God do it this way? And I think the answer is this, that God intends in the distribution of the gospel to to awaken within us the one thing that we need if we're ever going to be saved, and that is humility. To, to humble those who hear, that they would recognize that it was, not their, it was not their birthright to receive the riches of God's grace. I'm talking about all of the nations of the world, right? We are like, as it were, the dogs eating the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Let none of us be proud and think that we are rightful recipients of God's mercy or God's grace. He did it this way in order to humble the Gentiles. And again, Romans chapter 11 says that in doing so, he intends to humble the Jews as well. That the Jews, that God is doing this. God is now spreading the gospel among the nations, the Gentiles, in order to, quote, make the Jews jealous so that they too will be receptive to the Messiah. And in the end, when that reception, is, when, when the Messiah is received, it is not, he is not received proudly as if, well, we recognized him from the beginning but he is received humbly. Do you understand that Jews and Gentiles alike must receive the Messiah in just that way? If you don't receive God's mercy humbly, acknowledging your own stupidity and sin and blindness and coldness and unbelief, unless you are humbled by a realization of what, who you are and what you really deserve, then you won't, you won't come to really know and embrace the mercies of God. That's why God is doing it just this way. No one is ever proud that he gets into Christ's kingdom. All are undeserving. It demonstrates God's grace so that every single one who gets into the kingdom of Christ feels like he got in because God gave him, as it were, a second chance. That God just reached down in mercy to him. That's the way the gospel works. So here in the beginning, the Jesus limits the scope of this ministry to the Jewish areas only. Then we see not only the scope of the mission, but the nature of the mission. In verse number 7, Jesus sends them out 
to do two things. The same two things that he had been doing, to proclaim the good news and to work miracles. Jesus had done those two things. We read that thing, that in chapter 4, verse 23, and again in chapter 9, verse 35, that when Jesus went around, He did two things. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, and He worked great miracles. Now He sends His disciples out to do the exact same things. He sends them out, first of all, to proclaim. Verse 7, to proclaim, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly verbatim the message of Jesus back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus proclaimed, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he sends his disciples out not to give their own ideas, their own opinions about God, but to proclaim the very message that he himself proclaimed. Also implied in this message is repentance of sin, which implication is made explicit earlier when the message is proclaimed as repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. No one is ready to enter Christ's presence, to enter God's presence through Christ who doesn't first of all acknowledge his own failures. And I mean not just to say, hey, I'm not perfect, nobody's perfect. Listen, everybody in the world says that pretty much unless he's just an incredibly full of himself. (laughs) Have you ever met somebody who says, no, I am perfect? I don't think most of us never met somebody like that. Everybody says, yeah, I'm not perfect, but nobody's perfect. That's not humility. Humility is when you say, I see the depths of depravity of my own heart. I am unjust and undone before a holy God. Oh God, have mercy on me. A sinner. That's humility. Implied in this message of the coming of a great king is a sense of humble repentance of my rebellion against his rule and authority in my life. That was the message these men proclaimed. They not only proclaimed the message, though, they also worked miracles. Jesus tells them to go out and and cast out demons and heal people, even raise from the dead. And these are, of course, the very exact things that Jesus has been saying, that, that I gave it away now, that Matthew's been saying that Jesus did, right? Have we not read chapter 8, chapter 9, miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle? Jesus is sending these men out to do the very same, to preach the same message and to do the same works. This is not insignificant, okay? Stay with me on this. He's sending them out in like manner. Both their message and their words become an extension of the ministry of Jesus Himself. And finally, we note that that with regard to the nature of their ministry, that it was itinerant. He said, go into various towns and villages. Verse 5, He sent them out. He didn't leave them there where they were. He sent them out into all of the different towns. This is, by the way, why they're called apostles which means those who are what? Anybody know? You guys know, right? Say it. Those who are sent, right? Sent out. Um, So here are these men who are sent out into all of the villages and the countryside. The other Gospels fill in the 
the details for us, that he sends them out two by two and he tells them, don't stay in one town forever, but you preach the gospel there and then you go to the next town where they haven't heard and you preach the kingdom, that, that the king has come and you proclaim the good news there and then you go to the next town and you tell them the good news, the kingdom is here, right? You just go, go around in an itinerant way. And it is a reminder to us that Christianity is always meant to have a kind of cutting edge. That is, there is an element that is never at rest, that the Christian church is always to be pushing forward, breaking new ground, taking new territory. As you know, there are still over 6,000 in people groups that are unreached with the gospel, where there are fewer than 2% who claim the name of Christ, where there is no indigenous witness in that group of people to continue to evangelize that, that uh, culture, that, that group. Christianity has always recognized that part of our mission is to be on the cutting edge, to to be itinerant, to to keep looking for new places, to keep spreading the gospel. In those early days, of course, the front lines were the Jewish villages and towns of Galilee. This is where Jesus sends these men. We see, thirdly, the provision for their mission. Jesus talks to them very, in a very interesting way about this, in in an unexpected way, doesn't he? How are they to take care of themselves on this trip? He says, first of all, don't charge for your services. Don't charge for healing people, for casting out demons, preaching the gospel. In fact, there were... um, Oh, people who claimed to be miracle workers or, or people who helped people in some way back in those days who did uh, charge a fee. Uh, or maybe not put it so crassly, but uh, you give uh, a tribute to my, my God and then that'll you know, come back to me and, and then I'll do something to, to help you. Um, Jesus says, you do not charge for your services. And and, and this is a reminder to, to all Christian ministers that we must never, ever give the idea that the gospel is for sale, that wealth gains power within Christ's kingdom. There's only one thing that ought to bring influence in Jesus' kingdom, and that is godliness, Christ-likeness, holiness. Those are the kinds of people that ought to be elevated in a, in, a, in a Christian assembly. Pastors ought never to give any idea that Christianity is for sale. This flies in the face of everything that the gospel is about. For the gospel is about grace, which is a free gift. In fact, not simply free, but an undeserved gift. In fact, Paul at times actually refused people's remuneration because he was so sensitive on this very point that he not give any appearance 
of being in the business of the gospel for profit. May God deliver us from from preachers and from ministers like that. And not only that, but Jesus also says, and don't raise funds or pack any provisions for your journey. Now, this is where it gets really weird. We start saying, what? Don't take a change of, he says, don't take a change of clothes with you. Those guys had to be pretty stinky after a while, right? Don't take a change of clothes. He says, don't do that. Don't pack provisions, acquire no gold or silver or copper. Don't go out and raise any money to to sustain you on this journey. Don't bring a bag. Don't bring tunics or sandals or staff. Why? What is he thinking? Here's why. He says, verse 10, the end of the verse, for the laborer deserves his food. The expectation is that these people will be met by like-minded believers, receptive people to the Messiah who will freely, voluntarily want to take care of these men. These men are not to give any, they are not to charge for the gospel. They are to cast themselves entirely upon the goodness of God. But then he says, my God will take care of you through the free and voluntary gifts of his people. This is an Old Testament principle. The ox, you don't put a muzzle on the ox while he treads out the the, the grain. The laborer deserves his food. Paul said he used the same principle to argue that churches ought to take care of their elders who labor full-time in the work of the gospel. Jesus said, you will find people who are worthy, that is, people who are prepared to hear the gospel message and who will support freely and voluntarily. And when he he says, when you come into a place, you, you give your blessing upon that house, and this will indeed be the blessing of God, the blessing of Christ himself. And if those people are unworthy, that blessing will return back to you. God would take care of them as they went along, he said. And then that brings us to this, fourthly, about their mission, and that is Jesus talked to them about the authority behind their mission. This was central and right up front. And we see this authority in two ways. First, in action, verse number one. Take a look at the text again. This is the issue right up front. He says, Matthew records that Jesus called the disciples and He gave them what? Gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. He gave them His own authority. He transferred to them His own authority over all of the spiritual powers and over all of the ramifications of the curse to 12 ordinary guys. This is mind-boggling. They have this authority. They come, and when they speak a word of authority over the powers of darkness, the powers of darkness flee. When they forgive sins, they're forgiven. When they preach the gospel, it is the word of Jesus Christ going forth. He gives to them His 
authority, and that authority is seen in the actions of the, the miracles that they perform, authority over nature and demons or disease, all of the authority that has been on display for chapters one, uh, 8 through 9. Jesus has performed 10 miracles, and now he's delegating that authority to them, that authority in action, but also, and this is significant too, the authority of his word is now given to these 12 men. The authority of Jesus' word. Verse number 14. Take a look again. The reason I have you keep taking a look, by the way, is to see something. That the contours of the sermon are the contours of the text. Okay? That's just a by the way. That was for free. Okay? So the goal is that you may walk away not in... Not evaluating the words of a preacher, but engaging with the Word of God. All right, so again, verse 14, Jesus delegates to them His authority in word. He says, if anyone will not receive or listen to your words, then you shake off the dust of the feet when you leave that house or when you leave that town that has rejected me. In other words, don't carry any of that place away with you, holding on to your person. You, get, you just completely leave that place behind. And this is a reminder to us, of course, that our own individual, I should say this way, a person's own individual rejection of the word of Christ tends almost always to have ramifications on those around him. In this case, whole households or even whole towns. When the leaders of the town reject this message, they say, get out of here, the prophets, the the disciples leave, right? Verse 15, he says, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And that is the most sobering thing, I think, in this whole chapter because it is a historic fact that in ancient days, God sent fire and sulfur in some form or fashion to consume cities of the plain, including Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was a sort of a picture, a glimpse, God says, of the fires of God's eternal judgment the fires of hell. The rejection of the apostles' message would mean nothing less than burning in hell. That's why I say this is a sobering word from Jesus' own mouth. In fact, if you drop down to verse 40, you can also see again the the way that the words of these 12 men would be so powerful, so binding, as binding as Jesus' own words. He says, whoever, positively, he says, whoever receives you, you 12 disciples, whoever receives you, receives whom? Receives me. I mean, that's mind-boggling. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. Just as surely as Jesus Christ was an extension of the grace 
and the truth of God into this world. And to reject Jesus would be to reject God. So, Jesus says, to that same extent to reject these men would be to reject Him as well. Would be to reject Him. This is an un- this is a, a just an incredible level of authority that he grants to these men as he commissions them to go out on this preaching and healing expedition. Now, I want to bring it to a close and conclusion by reflecting on what we, modern-day, 21st century American Christians, are supposed to take away from this. Why is this here? What are we supposed to learn? How are we supposed to respond? All of the Scripture calls for us to respond. It may be a response in belief. It may be a response in our affections. It may be a response in action and doing something or refraining from something. But how are we supposed to respond to this passage? You think about that for a moment. No, it's okay. Go ahead and think. All right, you got an answer in your head? Maybe a couple of answers? I thought a lot about that this week. And I think in one sense, in one sense, the mission of those 12 forms a kind of paradigm for the witness and the mission of later disciples, including people like us. That first mission forms a sort of a paradigm, in in one sense, for later, broader missions involving other of Jesus' disciples. And I say that because of this. Because in Luke chapter 10, Jesus commissions again a group of people, not these 12 this time, but now a group of 72 other disciples with very similar wording to this. This then helps helps us to think, okay, so this means that their initial mission becomes a challenge to us regarding our own sense of mission, our own calling to evangelize, to send missionaries and spokesmen for Christ to the uttermost part of the world, that those people who stand in pulpits and rightly proclaim the message of Jesus Christ are in fact extensions of His own ministry, His own um, authoritative preaching and work in their midst, and that to reject such things is in a sense, to reject Jesus Christ Himself, that they should trust that God will take care of them, and that the preaching of the gospel today, if it is, in truth, a gospel that comports with the revealed Word of God in the Bible, if that is what is being preached, then it is just as binding And the rejection of it brings just as great a condemnation as the rejection of these initial 12 men. So I say in one sense, I think this becomes a sort of a paradigm, in a sense, 
for all subsequent disciples of Jesus. We're all on mission. The church of Jesus Christ is on a mission. Even now yet today. But I would say this secondly, that we must also recognize that this commission had some unique features that were not exemplary for all later disciples. Wouldn't you say so? For example, this was to be a strictly itinerant mission. Don't stay in any one town. Are we supposed to do that today? Am I wrong for staying here for all of these years? Is it wrong to have a local pastor? Should we just all be going from town to town? No, God does give men that calling. He burdens men with that and gifts them for that kind of ministry. And God, we need more of those. Amen? But He also calls men like Timothy to hunker down in a place like Ephesus and to preach the gospel day in and day out and year in and year out. Paul and Barnabas are led by the Holy Spirit to appoint elders to preach and teach the gospel in every town. There are times and places when what what is needed is an itinerant ministry, but there are times and places when what is needed is a very permanent, long-lasting testimony for Jesus Christ in a particular locality, a strengthening of the believers that are there, an equipping and a teaching and a preserving of those people through the preaching of the Word of God week after week. There are elements of this that are unique. For example, the fact that these men were accompanied with miraculous power that we may perhaps not have use of now. Or the fact that their mission was limited to the towns of Israel. We know that that's temporary because it was later rescinded and the restrictions removed by the time you get to the end of the book. What does Jesus say? Go ye therefore into all the world and to all preach the gospel to every, every creature to, to make disciples of all the nations, he says. So, so this, is, this is the first step. Acts chapter 1, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. The risen Christ, in fact, would call another apostle who would be primarily an apostle to the Gentiles. So this is temporary or different from our mission in that regard. And one more way, and that is that these men were to take no provisions for their journey. None at all. They were to just go out with what they had on their backs. And this too was a temporary commandment that was later rescinded. Because we read in Luke chapter 22, verse number 35, just before Jesus' death, that He says to His disciples... When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, which is a reference to this sending, he says, did you lack anything? And their hearts are supposed to go, no, you took good care of us. You took good care of us. We had some hardships. Oh, they were hard times. Remember that one city? Remember that one town? But Lord, you were always faithful. He says, do you remember that? Did you lack anything? And they said to him, nothing. But now he says to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So, in other words, there are things about this mission, this commissioning, that we can't just say, okay, let's take this and plug.
put down into our world today, and, and let's just say this is all about um, us going out and, and doing evangelism. It is about that. It is par- a paradigm for that. But there's something else going on here as well. While there are some parallels between this commission and our ongoing mission as modern-day disciples, the specific commission is nevertheless distinctive enough so as not to have a direct application to ourselves. This doesn't mean, however, that it has no application for us. In fact, far from it, this passage bears huge significance for us. And the significance is brought to light when we think about the relationship between ourselves and these 12 men. You think about that for a moment. The relationship between yourself, ourselves, and these 12 Christ-chosen men during His lifetime, men who were eyewitnesses like we read in John earlier, We are not apostles in in the strict sense of the the choosing of the the twelve, right? These twelve unique men whose names are on the New Jerusalem, who Jesus says will rule over the twelve tribes of Israel. You know, we are not apostles. There are not apostles today in that sense. The relationship of those twelve apostles to us is a relationship of authority. In fact, it's a relationship of unprecedented authority. And that is, they're the ones with the authority, delegated to them by Jesus Christ. Their names are on the foundation. They will judge the 12 tribes. They are recipients of the direct revelation from God. They were confirmed with miraculous gifts, which are referred to in 2 Corinthians 12.12 as, quote, signs of an apostle. They were given a measure of the Holy Spirit beyond anything that we have ever known such that He would bring everything that Jesus ever taught and said and did to their remembrance that they might write them down, they might pass them on, they might become for us the Scriptures that we call our New Testament. So Ephesians says that the church of Jesus Christ is built on the foundation that was laid by the apostles and the prophets. That one foundation for which there can be no other, Jesus Christ. They gave us the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. They either wrote them down or they passed them on to immediate um, um, partners, prophets, who, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in connection with the apostles, would give us every book of the New Testament that we possess. In other words, if you want to know where apostolic authority is today, you don't have to go hunting on the internet for local apostle, Houston, Texas. All you have to do is pick up your copy of the Word of God, and there you will find the apostolic testimony that is the final testimony, the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ and the New Covenant, what we call the New Testament. This is the way we relate to the apostles. We are under their authority, that is the authority of the New Testament, the authority of the Word of God. So if we're asking ourselves, how does this story then apply to us, right? Remember that's where we are? Then we have to think 
If we ask ourselves, where do I see myself in this story? What, what connects with me? Then the answer is that we don't primarily see ourselves in the apostles. We ought to primarily see ourselves in those that heard the apostles, in those households and those towns where the apostles went preaching and teaching. The question is whether we are worthy of what is being spoken, worthy in the sense that we are receptive to them. And by the way, don't trip over the word worthy. Worthy doesn't mean, oh, I'm, I'm good enough for God's kingdom. Worthy means the only way to be worthy is to realize how unworthy you are. That's when you're worthy. <laughs> that's, the, that's what these men finally uh, found, is that the many places where they went, people were humble and they were repentant and they were waiting for Messiah who would come and deliver them from the curse that they could not extricate themselves from, deliver them from the sin that they could not have victory over, deliver them from the powers of darkness that were greater than, the, than their power, and they were waiting humbly for the word of the Messiah. And these men came to say, He's here. The kingdom is at hand. We cannot re- say, listen to me, we cannot say that we receive Jesus when we do not receive the apostles that Jesus sent. When we live in ongoing, unrepentant disobedience, to the apostolic testimony and commands in the Word of God. If we are living out from under apostolic authority, we are not in connection, in union with Jesus Christ. It's just that simple. That's what he said. If they will not listen to you, they haven't heard me. So then when we look at it in that light, I think then the the questions begin to roll around in our mind in the right way. What is my relationship to the Word of God? What is my relationship to the apostolic authority which has been entrusted to me? How has my heart been sensitive or insensitive to the Holy Scriptures? Is there some part of my life in which I have yet been resisting the Word, not just of a man, but the Word of Jesus Christ Himself? Who can say, in the end, I am submitted to Jesus who does not submit himself to the word of these men to whom Jesus gave unprecedented authority? May it never be so with us. You know, James warns that a man says he has faith, but if he does not have works, his faith is what? It's dead. How can God, how can, how, can, how can we bless God and then turn around and curse men, he says. He says, don't deceive yourself into thinking that, well, I'm good, I'm keeping some of God's laws if you are ignoring others of God's laws. He says there's only one God, and if in your, you're in rebellion to Him in any area, then you are in rebellion, then, you, then you're a rebel. This is the teaching of the apostles that Christ sent out. May it never be that God shakes the dust of His feet, as it were, off from your household or of our city 
for our nation because his people, because, because people have refused to hear his word. Jesus said it, it will be more tolerable in the day of, so, in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah because you have had much greater light. You have heard the words of the apostles, not simply the types and shadows of the Old Testament. If we refuse him who warns us on earth, how much less shall we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven? writer of Hebrews says. And all of this sober warning, though, I do find one encouraging word. You know what it is? It's Jesus' mention of the, of the judgment of Sodom. And God did judge that city. But you remember what else he did? He saved somebody out of it, didn't he? That's right. In fact, Abraham got up and he pleaded with God, God, if there's, what did he start with, 50? If there's 50 righteous, would you spare the city? And God said, I would. Not that, God, not that the city deserved it, but God would just do it in his mercy. And then, you know, well, I don't know if there's 50, so let me move back down. And finally, he's down to 10. If there's just 10 righteous people, God said, I will not destroy the city for 10, Right? And you know what I'm reminded of? In fact, this is the way I pray sometimes. God, please preserve us as a people, as a nation, for the sake of the, those who still are righteous believers in this place. Please yet let liberty reign, let the gospel go out freely without punishment and, and, and retribution on a wide scale, let that happen. Remember us with mercy for the sake of those who love you. Right? There is hope there. There is hope because Abraham got on his knees and he prayed and he prayed. And even though God destroyed the city, for the sake of Abraham, God spared Lot, who didn't deserve it either. And so I'm reminded of this, friends, listen, that even though Jesus proclaims of a fiery judgment upon those who reject Him. And even though sin affects other people and brings God's judgment on whole nations and whole families and whole communities, yet still God is a God who answers prayer. And He is a God who may perhaps show mercy and grant repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, may rescue um, His people out of the fiery flame. If God knows how to rescue righteous lot from the city of Sodom, then God knows how to preserve those who are His and to bring them to Himself and to keep them and to cause them to persevere. We can pray. Pray for your family. Pray for your kids. Pray, God, please be merciful. Don't let any of us grow hardened to the word of the apostles, to Your word, O Jesus. Please be merciful on us. And the Lord does love to hear those prayers. And He loves to answer prayers. But in the end, of course, every one of us must give an account of himself. Am I in obedience to the word of God? How can I say I receive Christ, but I reject the words of his chosen emissaries? May it never be. Would you pray with me?
Lord, what we would ask you to do now humbly is to search us and try our thoughts. Point out any areas in our lives this week where we are still in some measure of rebellion against what we know. We ask that you would grant us repentance, real repentance about those things. That you might draw us into a humble relationship with you. Give us a greater understanding of the apostolic testimony of the scripture. That we may not sin by ignorance. That we might hear the words that you have to say. We ask it in Christ's name.